From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme. Now, we can't talk about bread and butter politics today. The rules uh, say that we can't do that because the polls are open in local elections across much of England today. We'll be digging into those results as they come in tomorrow. We'll have some of them by then. And we'll also have more analysis next week when the dust has settled a bit. It'll have to be scones and jam then. Well, you might get that this weekend. (laughs) The King's coronation, of course, on Saturday. So I want to talk a bit about, well, the institution that looms over all others, it would seem, the Crown. We'll be hearing uh, from the head also of the Crown Estates, which manages the property that the uh, monarchy, well, on behalf of the monarchy. So that a bit later on in the programme. But first, we've got in the studio with us our UK political editor, Kitty Donaldson, and our ultra-wealth reporter, Ben Stupples. Welcome to both of you. Kitty, let's start with comparing the mood in Britain now to the moment that Charles became king. It gives me PTSD, that that horrendous period of British history, and it seems a lifetime ago. It really does, doesn't it? And I know what you mean about the PTSD. I I feel the same. Um, we've, we've calmed down a bit then, haven't we? If you, if you think back to September, it was a very speedy demise by uh, the late Queen. One day she was welcoming Liz Truss, remember her, welcoming her into um, to become Prime Minister, and then two or three days later she died. Mm-hmm. So she was still working right up to the very end. Um, and that time was absolutely crazy. The economy was going crazy. Everyone didn't quite know where they were. Mortgage rates were rising. And now things have sort of slightly calmed down a bit, I think, uh, six months on, and we are, we're in a new period of stability and... Uh, Obviously, Charles has been king since since the Queen died, but he's about mm. to be crowned, and that should be should be good fun to watch. Mm. Kitty, okay, thinking about that that period, then um, Charles has taken on this hugely important role, really as an instrument of soft power in many ways for Britain. This weekend is going to see three days of celebrations, probably some protests, also. Mm. The world will be watching. There'll be many dignitaries in Westminster Abbey. Um, it's going to be watched around the world. So how important is it really as a moment of soft power for Britain? I think it is a moment of soft power and that is the, the modern use, I don't know if that's the right word, modern face of the monarchy is they they represent Britain's interests abroad and actually that is declining a bit. Several Commonwealth countries and have said that they don't want um, Charles as, as head of their state anymore. So that soft, pl- soft power is in decline. 
But actually, there was quite a good example recently when he went to Germany and mm. he, he wooed the Bundestag and, and German MPs absolutely loved him and he made jokes. Um, in, in German? He spoke in, yeah, <laughs> yeah. very well, gave a speech in German. Yes, half in German, half in English. Um, and, and, they, and they loved it. And I think that goes to show... And also the countries where the royal, you know, some of the um, Middle Eastern states where the royal family are in, in government, it's quite useful to have royalty for them to meet, you know, on, on a diplomatic level, one-on-one. They're, on one. they're friends, aren't they? He's like friends with the King of Jordan. Yes, I, I mean, yeah. And, you know, but, but, but quite a lot of these people are, you know, were educated at British mm. public schools and, you know sometimes more British than the British. They took, when I, you know, I go travelling with British Sunak and the Prime Ministers and they all chat about cricket, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ben, you've written a nice piece about uh, the, the royal wealth. Just walk us through the procession route from, from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey and, and, and the, the, the things it passes, the, the, the royal zone. Of course, I mean, Charles is going to be leaving the most valuable asset of all within the sort of the royal portfolio. Obviously, Buckingham Palace it's got a, uh, if you were to put that on the market today easily, that would fetch more than a billion pounds. Of course, it's not going to come on the market tomorrow um, or any time in the foreseeable future, in fact. But as Charles moves towards in a six horse drawn carriage uh, towards Westminster Abbey Hill Pass, namely uh, some other palaces, but within the Crown Estate collection, uh, you've got Carlton House Terrace. Now, those are properties built, you know, it, it, when we imagine the Mall. Uh, there's those beautiful cream houses. They're built for Britain's ruling classes. Now they're part of the Crown, Crown Estate portfolio that helps ultimately to fund the UK sovereign. I mean, they're worth at least 100 million. There's, the Crown Estate in the past has sold some of them to uh, the billionaire families like the Hindujas. And as he turns, just before he turns towards um, Westminster Abbey, goes around Trafalgar Square, if he looks down the Strand, he'll see plenty of the assets that are part of another estate that funds the UK monarch, and that's called the Duchy of Lancaster. To sum that up, that's effectively a private piggy bank for the King, which previously served, of course, the Queen for the last seven decades. Kitty, I don't want to rain on this parade, but we are in a cost of living crisis. What's your gauge of public sentiment around all this pomp and pageantry around the coronation and the monarchy in general? I was speaking to someone last week and they put it quite well and they said, we want a bit of glamour, but we don't want extravagance. Mm. And I think I think that sort mm. of sums it up. Um, people are prepared to, I suppose, button their lip a bit and say, you know, it needs to be done. But actually, I was talking to um, Republic, who are the, um, who believe the monarchy should be abolished, the pressure group, and they're planning protests on the day. And they've got, they've got themselves printed up yellow t-shirts saying, not my king on them. And they're going to, but this is quite interesting. They, they said, oh, we're, we're going to protest in a respectful way. You know, mm. so, so even, <laughs> even anti-monarchists sort of res- respect the views of other people in the crowd who are monarchists, right? And so it, w- it won't be a kind of free-for-all. Well, I mean, there is still majority support for the monarchy within the UK, but what does the polling kind of show now? Do younger people care? Is it just um, that Charles is the, at the start of his reign? How does his popularity, let's say, compare to you know his late mother? You're absolutely right. And there's been quite a lot of polling in the run-up to the coronation. Um, it basically divides on generational lines. So mm. 77% of people 65 or older back the monarchy. And then when you get down to uh, people in their 20s and 30s, it just ebbs right away. And I spoke to quite a lot of, this makes me sound really old, quite a lot of young people about <laughs> about the uh, coronation. And they were saying, 
you know, shrug, mm, meh, whatever, you know, just sort of, I'm just a bit indifferent. And actually, um, one woman I spoke to, she, she, she had a collection of, she's got a collection of coronation mugs, which she'd inherited from her grandmother. And she kept, she said, well, I keep them in a kind of kitsch way, in a kind of ironic way, whereas her grandmother had kept them in a, in a sort of, you know deferential yes exactly yes 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 exactly what the youth would call love of huns is the way that the the granddaughters keep in them yeah well i've (laughs) not heard that phrase which just goes to show you Uh, (laughs) but the youth love prince william don't they does split on that generation line as well yes and this actually this is kind of interesting for me in the sort of in the whole um when i've been looking at this is is you'd, you'd think that if if you you think logically, right? If you don't necessarily approve of the institution and you think it's a bit irrelevant, then perhaps you might like Harry and Meghan. Um, but actually, the polling doesn't bear that out. There is quite a lot of support for William and his wife Kate. Um, so, so that's kind of interesting. And and the fight for relevance that's going on at the moment is mm. is kind of the 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 interesting sort of subplot. And we'll be looking out for that on the day. We'll be looking out for where Harry's sitting. You know, whether he makes eye contact with William all that kind of psychodrama that's going on behind. And this kind of, well, I mean, this this brings into um, this whole idea around monarchy of, of social media. Of, I mean, if we're talking about soft power, you know, it's the, the media routes um, through which you make that happen. I suppose, um, Ben, in terms of Harry and Meghan, there's also been quite a lot of focus on, you know, how much money they've managed um, to, to make and their kind of their social media presence. I suppose, how does that weave into how you think about royal soft power and, you know, in a social media age? I think, I think you know, obviously with Meghan Markle's career, obviously previous career, mm. um, I think they're definitely, you know, it's obviously not been unhelpful, I would say, to, um, you know, building out what I think is a second life for them outside the royal family. They really do are going to have to, if they're going to stay relevant outside the UK and outside the royal family, this is going to be a big part of leveraging that platform um, to, frankly, build a, build a life for themselves. Of course, at the moment, Harry is also taking, uh, you know, effectively splitting with the stance on with his with the rest of his family on taking the British media to court. Um, that's probably going to not uh, go away in the foreseeable future. And I think again, we're going to see a test again of will will the, will the Sussexes make any statement on that on social media? Um, probably for the moment they can't. But again, that's another tension point. I would say that again will will help to sort of. Um, read between the lines of where Harry is sitting. I think we'll try to extrapolate as much as we can on the weekend. And, and, and Harry and Meghan aside, how much transparency is there in the, the finances of the, of the individual royals? Well, to take the long view over the last thousand years, they've got a lot better. But I would certainly say, <laughs> as a wealth reporter sitting here, um, you know, reporting on all sorts of the world's ultra-rich, um, they definitely have a bit further to go. Um, in the last two decades, the lawmakers have really push, pushed the button for the, for the t- estates that serve the monarchy to reveal far more. Um, that came to a head, I would say. Uh, they do have published accounts uh, that are going into quite a lot of detail. But this is, uh, we came to a bit of a sticking point with uh, with Prince Andrew's settlement for, we'll remember the, the case related to Jeffrey Epstein. Um, we don't know where that money came from. We can imagine it came from the Queen. We don't know how much of it came from the Queen. And that would have come through, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the private sort of piggy bank that the Queen has through the Duchy of Lancaster. It most likely would have come through there because, frankly, where else has Andrew had sort of sources of income for for a multi-million pound settlement over the past um, over the past decade? So I would say more to, more to go. Uh, it would be up to the lawmakers, really, um, to make those changes. 
And Kitty, Ben mentioned Andrew's case. There's also been Harry's book. There's all of this internal feuding in the royal family with which the tabloids seem to be obsessed. How much does that destabilise the monarchy? I do think it dilutes the brand. Um, and I think Charles has been very clear on this. He wants to slim down monarchy. He wants just the key players. He doesn't want Andrew's daughters, um, Beatrice and Eugenie, to play an active role, to be working royals. Um, actually, to go back to Ben's point about Buckingham Palace being worth mm. a billion pounds, I think I interviewed Prince Andrew a few years ago for mm. Bloomberg. Yeah, um, when he was a business ambassador, we ended up in his apartment in Buckingham Palace on the first floor. And two things really stick out for me. Um, one is that it was full of teddy bears, like full of teddy bears. Like That's weird. Well, well God, perhaps. you said that so that the listeners can feel the look on <laughs> all our faces. Face. <laughs> but all ranges of sizes, you know, up to waist height. And, and the other thing that struck me was the decor. Um, and it was clearly designed, uh, it was had those sort of, curtain swags that were popular in the 80s and it was clearly designed just or decorated just after um, Andrew and um, Sarah the, uh, his former wife were married and so uh, I, I think I wouldn't quite offer a billion and because <laughs> because the decor needs updating you'd be bidding them down yes yeah, yeah exactly exactly ah oh, I could buy a beware then yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, uh, look before your purchase okay um We've weaved through a lot of themes, but I also sort of want to talk a bit about um, the actual event on Saturday at Westminster Abbey. I mean, it is a religious event and the kind of one bit of change in this hundreds and hundreds of years old um, coronation ceremony is that there are going to be more re uh, religious leaders involved. And there's also going to be, uh, as in not just from the Church of England, but from other denominations, other religions, included and there's also going to be this pledge that has been um sort of d defended and derided i would say um the idea that people across britain would pledge allegiance to charles just sort of privately in their own living room i i don't know kitty what was your reaction to that you know it was it's been flagged as one of the big changes so i suppose that's why i want to get your view on it yeah it struck me as a kind of strange mixture on the on the one hand you know he's always uh, charles has always said he wants to be defender of the faiths not just yes. the, the anglican faith and i think that's to be welcome in sort of modern multicultural britain but the idea of of swearing allegiance has sort of gone down i think quite badly with mm. pe even people who are monarchists because there's that very um, individualistic aspect of the British character, which doesn't is a bit suspicious of swearing allegiance to anything, to be honest. And I, I don't suppose you'll find many people standing in their their living rooms or you know watching wherever they're watching in the pub or whatever. It'd be quite interesting to see how many people stand up and actually say it. And on the on the soft power front, will. Will the world be watching on, on Saturday? Because you really got the sense when, with the Queen's funeral that everybody was watching. And of course, the attendee list was incredible. And the Queen's coronation, everybody was there. Is there a sense of declining British power in the, the attendance list and, and the number of people watching around the world? I think you've got a point. And for instance, um, the US president isn't coming. His wife, Jill Biden, is coming. Um, there are various heads of states from around the world, but it's not the big. Of, it doesn't feel like the big event that was the Queen's funeral, which seemed like the sort of passing of an mm. era. Um, 
and also you just I don't think like you feel the same excitement you know you by now you'd expect kind of Marks and Spencers to be sort of rammed with people buying you know vegetarian quiche or whatever they're serving this this you know the broad bean and tarragon thing that looks absolutely disgusting but but no one no one I don't know I none of none of my friends or family seem to be that keen I I, I just sort of get a sense that everyone's a bit like oh another royal well, thing but, but like in the way that he's slimming down the monarchy on purpose does that s- suggest then that he's making a big PR blunder and not invigorating the nation behind mm, the monarchy bigging it up more yeah Yes, it's a bit sort of um, sheepish, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, he's sort of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, because if he spends a fortune on it and people go, well, I, you know, I can't pay my heating bill. Yeah. And then, but on the other hand, you want to look good to the rest of the world. So it's, it's, a, it's a problem. The, the, the one other issue that we haven't touched on, I sort of want to get to it with, with Ben, um, which is the... You know, the difficult question about this long monarchy and in particular links and ties the history of connection to the slave trade um, in terms of the foundation of the wealth of Britain and, and the monarchy. And there's been a great deal more coverage of that issue. You know, just look at The Guardian's in-depth reporting for a number of weeks on this topic. There has been a little step forward in the sense that Charles has, um, and the palace has supported some research into those connections. But just tell me about kind of how we think about that. It, it does feel to me markedly different to during the Queen's reign. A hundred percent. This has really come to the surface, hasn't it, in the last few weeks? And um, I would say, I'd say King Charles has been waiting a long time to be in this position, of course. I think he's also, to an extent, understood, you know, there's practicalities. I think he's a practical man to an extent. I think he realises that what he's got to do effectively to get on to the next generation. I think people see a lot of popularity around William and Kate. One of the issues that I think he's going to have to deal with during his reign is this topic of of slavery mm. links uh, that, that the monarchy has going back generations uh, to what I think has been described. I think he's seen as something that he describes as despicable himself. Um, I think he he's likely going to have to own that to some extent. We are already seeing. I think what the interesting development here is that some wealthy individuals in Britain are now saying, "I will give some money." I will give some money to say, you know, as a reparation for what's happened in the past. Now, of course, we, we've just published a big story about how wealthy Prince Charles and the UK royals are. Um, they could have quite, if, if they are to follow suit, that could be quite a significant amount. Um, I think, you know, King Charles's reign officially sort of, I say, starts in a soft way um, after this weekend. This is probably going to be top of his agenda. Katie, I just wanted to bring this back to the relationship with, with, with the government and, and the Prime Minister. Unlike the Queen, of course, we know a lot about Charles's firmly held views on all sorts of things, don't we? Mm. Do, do you think there is a, a changing of that relationship or, or will it kind of continue in the way that it's done for, for hundreds of years? I think he has to step back from the being political. Uh, people won't stand for it. There was a quite a big row when he was dragged into... Um, meet Ursula von der Leyen from the European Union mm-hmm. over the Windsor framework and people particularly in uh, the Northern Irish um, party thought they were being bounced basically by, by by the king being involved so he has to be super careful um, when he went to Germany which we were talking about before and he condemned Russia um, but that is so sort of universal in, in Western Europe is to kind of not be political in a sense right? it's it's a sort of taken as taken as understood um and and actually charles himself has has made it clear in various interviews that he 
intent he he sees the rule very differently from being Prince of Wales to being king. And as Prince of Wales he felt that he could lobby perhaps or ask to be involved and you know, he's got his pet projects and, and actually what's kind of interesting is 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 um particularly on climate change. He was mm-hmm. an early advocate of uh, green um farming and or, sorry organic farming and green policies and actually he's been sort of proven right people used to laugh at him for talking talking to plants but they don't laugh anymore yeah it's like poundbury you know his yeah. um the would you call it an estate of homes mm. yes for the long term that's mm. affordable right housing yeah, yeah. No, sustainable very, very nice it is too um yeah and i suppose we've It was extraordinary, though, you know, thinking about this coronation this weekend. My mother's um, 80 years old and she was telling my daughter about 1952 when she bought a television set. The family bought a television set for that coronation. And she sort of imparted. It was it was kind of amazing that the nation stopped Mm. for that coronation. In fact, the world did. She was talking to a New Zealander who was talking about the very same experience in, in New Zealand we surely can't say the same of Britain today. Do you think, Kitty, that for most ordinary Britons, does this actually change anything, a new monarch to them? Well, it's hard to speak for an entire nation, <laughs> <Yes>. Caroline. <laughs> but the microphone is yours. <laughs> hard to do it justice. Yes, exactly. Event, isn't it? Uh, I think I I don't think there's the same level of affection that there was for the Queen, mm. but that affection was born out over seventy years of reign, right? And we know that just because of the age he is, he's not going to last as long as the Queen did. Um, so whether he's got time to build up the level of affection, I think he's done pretty well so far. There not been any major gaffes, not been any sort of reasons why people wouldn't um, would dislike him. In fact, his popularity in the polls has gone up since he became king and it's more visible so um i think i think he's okay for now right fantastic to get your reflections thanks so much that's kitty donaldson our uk political editor and our ultra wealth reporter ben stubbles so just building on the idea then of the money behind the monarchy the crown estate owns a portfolio of land and property that is worth something like 16 billion pounds and of course it belongs to the monarchy through the right of the crown it's not actually their private property the monarch surrenders the revenue from it to the treasury every year but then in exchange the king and the royal family get the sovereign grant. This is an arrangement that's gone back uh, to 1760. Lizzie Burden and I were speaking actually to the man who's in charge of running this estate. He was very interesting on the topic of how the investments are made over the long term, what being in charge of this kind of portfolio means for Britain. Have a listen. Here's the chief executive of the Crown Estate, Daniel Labad. We, we operate uh, independently under an Act of Parliament, the 1961 Act of Parliament, and our job is very specific uh, to take what is a very unique portfolio um, and uh, put it to use for the nation. We own land nationally from parts of central London right through to parts of the seabed, uh, and our job is to think about a few things. Firstly, how we deliver uh, returns for the Treasury for taxpayers. Uh, Secondly, how we think about some long-term issues like climate change and energy security and the role that we can play. Uh, Secondly, uh, the natural environment, uh, which is just as important as challenges like climate change, but probably not amplified as much. 
Uh, and finally, you know, economic growth, how we can support growth across the country, something that's very needed, you know, at this point in time. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're constantly focused on how do we take, as you said, a £16 billion portfolio and put it to best use to serve that purpose. I think listeners um, will be surprised in some ways that the monarch owns, in some ways, the seabed, half of the foreshore around large parts of the UK. Um, how much demand is there for UK offshore wind? Well, the offshore uh, wind market is huge. But before I get into that, it's probably worth me just noting that, you know, we do operate independently. Mm. So we operate under an act of parliament. And our role is to, as I said, put what we own to use for the country and deliver all of our profits, 100% of it to the Treasury. Uh, there's a huge demand for the offshore wind market. In fact, we're uh, second in the world only to China as a market. It's a fantastic UK success story that the Crown Estate has been a key part of, but there are many other stakeholders that have driven that, including government, developers and the third sector. Uh, 25 years in the making, uh, and we're now rated as one of the best places to invest in the world. Um, there's not only a huge demand because of that, because the renewable energy is a key part of our future. And it's probably worth noting as well that in order to achieve uh, our net zero targets as a country, we cannot do it without the seabed. Uh, yes, offshore wind is now the core technology that is being rolled out. And as I said, that's a fantastic success story. But I think what's important for your listeners is there are other technologies coming to bear, carbon capture and storage, uh, tidal, in the future, mm. hydrogen. Uh, so, you know, it's a success story in the making, not just in terms of what it means from a renewable energy perspective, but also jobs uh, and industry uh, for the UK in the future. Yeah, I wonder how you don't, how you make sure that you don't squander that opportunity. You know, we're in an energy crisis. Should the elevated profits from leasing the seabed for offshore wind generation be ring fenced to create a to seed a UK sovereign wealth fund, for example? Well, I think from you know our perspective, coming back again to our role, our role is to ensure that we're creating that value in the first place. That's very important because without that value, you can't ask questions about distribution, and other things. Um, you know, our role is to make sure we deliver that into the consolidated fund, and then obviously, it's not our place to decide how that is that, that how that is spent. Our role is to make sure that we're creating that value, and and that's incredibly important because. You know, extracting um, the opportunity for the country in areas like renewables on the seabed is not easy. You know, it takes a lot of a lot of graft, a lot of hard work. Uh, and what's great about the story that we're telling is that that value is now there. So, you know, our role is to make sure that we continue to ensure it's there. Okay, uh, the Crown Estate has shaped in many ways the, the landscape of you know the, the whole country, but also of the city um, and the city of London. So, of course, one of the key topics for us at Bloomberg is around central London, around property prices. There are various estimates, you know, ranging from a drop of ten to twenty, even forty percent in real terms in property uh, values in the UK. What is your estimate about the hit? And in your kind of um, your your management of the property portfolio of the Crown Estates, would this be an opportunity to build on the Crown Estates ownership and buy, let's say, in a down market? So I think first of all, you know, we are long-term investors and that's part of our uniqueness. It's I can't sort of overemphasize, you know, the unique nature of the Crown Estate. We are a company for the country and there's no, no one out there like us, which, which um, in turn... Um, Leads, leads us to think about property from a long-term perspective. Mm -hmm. But bringing it back to short-term, because we are also responsible for ensuring that we're delivering immediate value, um, there are a lot of structural changes impacting property right now. Digital was uh, disrupting before COVID. COVID has had a huge amount of disruption, and the effects of which are yet to be felt. Uh, I think there is opportunity, listening to our customers, to think about office and retail in new ways, which is what we're doing. 
but equally, I think there's also going to be opportunity to build. So that was the CEO of the Crown Estate, Daniel Labbard, speaking to Lizzie Burden and I just earlier on. Oh, Caroline, radio. I am so glad that we didn't include the part where I asked him where he'll be watching the coronation <laughs> from. <laughs> we thought that it was going to be, you know, his living room like me, but of course it probably isn't. No, it's probably front row, front and centre at the Abbey. Wait, so- are you guys not invited to the Abbey? <laughs> yeah. you. Clearly I don't have the manners to be running uh-huh. anything for King Charles. <laughs> So uh, that was uh, Daniel Labbad then uh, on the Crown Estate and the huge portfolio of, of uh, money and land that uh, backs the monarchy in Britain. Yeah, I think the fascinating thing is not only all that land in the middle of London, but they own the seabed yes, out to 12 yes. nautical miles. That is a lot of land. And of course, with all the wind energy, it's, it's getting It's not just important. the wind energy. People are going to make money out of seaweed very soon, I hear. Is that right? Yeah. I think it's the new commod. Well, the one question that we didn't ask Daniel Labad is actually about the issue of onshore wind farms, mm-hmm. you know, because he was talking about mm-hmm. developing, uh, you know, wind power for Britain, second only to China, he said. But actually, we didn't sort of get to the idea of, well, you know, what happens uh, in terms of wind power actually on land. But anyway, perhaps for another day. Which is a much thornier issue than the offshore stuff. Yeah. That's it from us for today. If you do like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marie Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.